following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit from the, for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Please turn with me and your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, uh, to the passage that we just heard read. Uh, we are coming this morning to the final parable in the gospel according to Mark, the final parable. In fact, not only are there no more parables to come, there are also no more miracles until the very end when we get to the resurrection. But don't be fooled. Things are not slowing down. They're actually ramping up. In the previous scene, at the end of chapter 11, if you recall, the religious leaders had tried to trick Jesus into saying something that would turn the people against him. But Jesus reversed the trap masterfully. And now, before they are able to slink away, he holds up a mirror and turns it outward to them and tells them a story. Here's what I think is the, the main idea, the main thrust of this parable of the tenants in Mark 12. God is patient, not indifferent. God is patient, not indifferent. He will judge all fruitless rebellion, but give an inheritance to those who welcome his son. God is patient, not indifferent. He will judge all fruitless rebellion, but give an inheritance to those who welcome his son.
The structure of this sermon is going to be quite different than usual. Typically, I have three or four main points, and I weave application throughout. But in this case, I'm going to do away with points, gasp, give you some time to gasp, and I'm going to save the bulk of the application until after we've journeyed through the parable. Uh, I think that this parable loses some of its coherence and intended force if we break it up too frequently. So first, we're going to get our mind around the story as a whole and then briefly consider some lessons in light of it. May the Lord bless this pointless sermon. <laughs> Look with me at verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now, because we live 2,000 years later in a very different cultural setting, we need to think about what exactly we're picturing here. Uh, this is a huge winemaking operation. You have a, a vineyard, a fence, a lookout tower, and a, and a pit for a wine vat. And the owner, just before moving to a far-off place, he, he leases the land. He leases the whole operation to some hired tenants. They're responsible to farm the land, grow and ferment the grapes, and ultimately to produce what the owner, to whom they report, desires. Not only would this imagery, as unfamiliar to us as it may be, not only would this imagery have been familiar to those listening to Jesus, but so would the symbolism. It's just not just a random story that Jesus thought of. There's symbolism here that would have been familiar. His Jewish audience would have immediately recognized a particular backdrop. Turn with me in your Bibles backward to Isaiah chapter 5. You can keep your finger in Mark 12, but turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Listen for the echoes as the prophet Isaiah writes the following in Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. In context, that is the Lord's vineyard. My loved one, that is the Lord, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then the explanation, verse 7. 
The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So God had leveled this charge against his people seven centuries before Jesus shows up and gives the parable of the tenants. Psalm 80 is, an, is another passage you can look at in your own time where, where God tells the story of bringing his people as a vine out of Egypt and planting her in a new place, a land flowing with milk and honey, a picture, in other words, of fruitfulness, the way God's people were always intended to be. So with that background music of Isaiah in your ears, now turn back to Mark chapter 12. Verse 2, Jesus says, at harvest time, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The harvest of wine would have come not for weeks or four months, but about four years after the, van- the vineyard was planted. So this is a time of pent-up anticipation. These tenants are stewards. Remember, they owe fruit to the owner. In fact, that's how rent in the ancient world was often paid, not in cash, but in portions of produce. So with great expectation from his distant land, the owner dispatches a servant to go collect his fruit. Verse 3, but they seized the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he, the owner, sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. In other words, the tenants treated the owner's men just as disgracefully as Israel's PhDs had treated all the prophets God had sent them. From Isaiah 700 years before, whom we just read, to a messenger in recent history like John the Baptist. This is recent stuff. Century after century, God has been sending servant after servant to collect the fruit of repentance. Verse 6, the owner had one left. He's out of servants, but he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they'll respect my son. Jesus is, of course, speaking of God the Father sending him. And even his phrasing is deliberate. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. Where have we heard that language before? Well, it's an echo of the transfiguration, though that that was a private event. But it's also an echo of a very public event of Jesus' own baptism and the Father's public endorsement, his public affirmation. 
Mark 1, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. But even though the vineyard owner in Mark 12, even though this, this vineyard, owner, vineyard owner treasures his son more than all the jewels beneath the earth, nonetheless, he gives him away. He sends him. Oh, what a dazzling picture, friends, this is of the generosity of God. He didn't withhold from us his best, even when we had done to him our worst. Or as the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 8, 32, he, God, who did not spare his own son, didn't withhold his own son, but rather gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Well, how do the tenants who represent Israel's leaders, how do they respond to the sudden arrival, the sudden presence of the owner's son? Verse 7, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let's repent and respect him. No. Instead, we read, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus has already called his shot. He's already told his followers that he'll be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and executed. But here he describes it even more vividly. What he predicted to his disciples, he now explains to his adversaries. Notice Jesus does not presume that these tenants are merely uninformed about the son's identity. He, he doesn't presume they're just ignorant. No, he has them saying in his parable, he quotes them as saying, this is the heir. Ding, ding, ding. That's correct. They know, they understand that unlike all those servants that the owner had sent, that this one is different. They understand that this one is the son, the heir. This is not a peripheral detail. All the drama turns on this. Do you see what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders? He's looking at them in the eye through this subversive parable, and he's saying, deep down, you know who I am. Deep down, you know I'm the son, the promised son and heir from Psalm chapter 2. King David was pointing beyond himself when he wrote, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read Psalm 2 verses 7 and 8. The Lord said to me, so this is King David pointing beyond himself, the Lord said to me, you are my son. There's that word. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm 2, 8 Ask me, the Lord's saying, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. Friend, just as Jesus knew the hearts of these religious leaders two millennia ago, 
so he knows your heart today. They had no excuse. And to be frank, neither do you. If you're not yet following him, living for him and his glory, he says to you, deep down, you know who God is. Sure, you may not yet be acquainted with the thrilling message of gospel grace. We'd love nothing more than for you to be acquainted, become acquainted with that gospel this morning. You may not know all the intricacies of God's grace, but you know that you are living on borrowed time with borrowed breath. You're not ignorant of the fact that you have a creator and that you've lived for yourself instead. Romans 1 makes the startling claim, a startling claim and honestly an offensive claim to many. Romans 1 says that there is ultimately no such thing as an atheist. Did you know that? According to the Bible, it's, it's not that atheists don't believe in God, it's that God doesn't believe in atheists. Listen to Paul's damning description of natural humanity. Normal people. Normal people. From Romans chapter 1. I'll start in verse 18. You can turn there if you like or just listen. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Whenever I read that idea of trying to suppress the truth, I think of trying to keep a beach ball under the surface of the water. It's just not going to be very easy to suppress what's real. They suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans 1.19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. You hear that? The assumption is they have intrinsically this knowledge that they are not their own, that they are made, that there is a creator, but they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then the chilling crescendo, verse 32. If you think the Bible is irrelevant, just some ancient book fit for museums and dusty shelves, listen to this verse written 2,000 years ago, Romans 1.32. Although they, that is ordinary sinful humanity, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Friend, you may not like it. I may not like it. 
But this is how God describes every single one of us in our natural state. This is deadly serious. This description could not be more serious, more damning. We have all made the worst trade of all time. We have traded the glory of God for the glory of created things, for images, not just of animals or other human beings, but fundamentally for a mirror, for the image staring back at us. We have lived, we have said, ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the good news of gospel grace, as we'll think about more as we make our way through this parable, the good news of gospel grace is that there is a way for us who are lost in our ruined, guilty state of rebellion against God to be made right with him, to be reconciled to him, to be restored into a relationship with him. That can happen, friends, simply by turning away from your sin, relinquishing your rebellion, and putting your faith and trust in Jesus who lived and died and rose in your place for your sin so that you can be restored forever to a beautiful relationship with the God who made you. If you want to hear more about what that looks like, how you can climb out of that description in Romans chapter 1 and into the freedom of being a child of God, please talk to someone in this room before you walk out of here today. Talk to me at the door. We want to share with you this news that has transformed our lives. Well, in verse 9 of the parable, the, the owner, he, he responds. So he sent all of the servants, and it didn't go well. They, they, they beat the servants. Some they killed. Finally, he sends his son, his beloved son, and they end up murdering him. So how does the owner respond? Verse 9. What then, Jesus asks, will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and kill those tenants. And here's the punchline of the parable. And give the vineyard to others. And give the vineyard to others. Jesus is forecasting what actually happened in history 40 years later when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But who, who are the others here in verse 9 he speaks of whom the owner is now going to give the vineyard to? Well, Jesus is previewing. It's, it's important to realize he is previewing here a massive transformation in redemptive history, a, a monumental shift in the history of salvation. The identity of God's people is about to change. It's not because God has changed his mind. This is not plan B. This is plan A. But the identity of God's people is about to change. We've already seen this actually in Mark, if you recall. For example, in chapter 3, Jesus calls to himself how many apostles? 12. What is the significance of that? Do you recall? 
Well, Jesus chose 12 apostles as a way of saying, not so subtly, just as there were 12 Israelite tribes, so I am now here on earth. It's, it's God making a personal appearance on earth. I am here to reconstitute around myself a new people of God. From now on, the people of God is not going to be national Israel but spiritual Israel. That is all those Jew and Gentile who are united by faith to the true Israel, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember the context we're in, what what has just happened. This is Jesus's final week, okay? Remember in the last chapter, after Jesus flipped the tables in the temple, what did he say? Mark eleven seventeen. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And I pointed out in that sermon that Mark uniquely accents that little phrase, for all nations. So it's no surprise here, just one day later, this is tomorrow, this, or, or this is the next day, Jesus is effectively saying, hey, God is going to replace this whole temple complex, this whole temple system, and incorporate foreigners into his chosen people. In verse 10, the parable is finished, but Jesus is not. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture, he asks. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? And then he quotes from Psalm 118, our Scripture reading earlier in the service. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's why we should never think that this was some kind of plan B, that Jews, you know, Jesus coming to reach the Jews was God's plan A, and it didn't go so well, so he changed his mind and then went for plan B went for plan B. Jesus could have just quoted Psalm 118.10, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's his main point. But he adds, verse 11, the Lord has done this. The Lord has done this. Not the tenants, not the religious leaders, finally, not human sin, finally. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The image here from Psalm 118 is a big stone that at first seems redundant. It it doesn't seem like it will fit anywhere in the temple that's being built. And so the builders discard it, forget about it, only to later realize that it's actually the only stone, the only rock that fits perfectly in the place of the capstone that can hold the whole structure together. And Jesus is saying the rejected stone is the rejected son. But you religious leaders have failed to see that far from being ignorable, discardable, I am indispensable. It makes sense that Mark would feature this callback from the lips of Jesus, this callback to Psalm 118, because who was Mark's main source for his gospel? Peter. I often say that the gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. And Peter, uh, this was a a favorite prophecy of his from Psalm 118. He quotes it in Acts chapter 4 when he's brought before the authorities, and he quotes it in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, which was our call to worship at the beginning of the service. 
He's addressing believers just like us. And here's what he said, what we heard at the beginning. As you come to Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter proceeds. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what he says next, right after the passage in our call to worship. For in Scripture, this is 1 Peter 2, 6 and following, for in Scripture it says, then he quotes Isaiah 28, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. And that's true. If, if you're a Christian, Jesus is precious to you. Becoming a Christian is not just accepting him. We use that language, which is not entirely bad, but I don't love it because I also accept things like root canals. I mean, no, becoming a Christian is not just accepting Jesus, it's embracing him as your treasure. That's why Peter quotes Isaiah as saying, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But Peter says to those who don't believe, and here he quotes from that same Psalm Jesus does, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then from Isaiah 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, that is the message of the gospel, which is also what they were destined for. So in Mark 12, as, as we confront this parable, not just as outside observers watching a scene between Jesus and his antagonists, but as we step into the scene and we make eye contact with Jesus himself, this has map, massive implications for every person in this room. This parable, and in particular this quote from Psalm 118, about the stone. How will you, Jesus is asking, how will you treat the owner of the universe's beloved son, his chosen cornerstone? Because there are only two options at the end of the day. Either you reject the cornerstone or you connect to the cornerstone. There's no other choice. Well, how does Mark's reporting end? Verse 12, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. What's interesting is that if you recall, the purpose of parables is not just to reveal truth. The purpose of parables, according to Jesus, is to conceal truth. It is to reveal truth to those with ears to hear, but it's also to conceal truth from those who are operating in bad faith. But in this case, something unusual happens. They do, those operating in bad faith, the ones the parable is spoken against, they do get what Jesus is saying. It's not lost on them. The point of this parable is not hidden. Jesus has a mere hours to live. He's not concealing his identity. He's not playing the long game. He is 
clashing with his enemies because he is on his way to a Roman cross for the joy set before him. But because these men are cowards, afraid of the people, which we saw at the end of chapter 11, they slither away to wait and plot for a better time. Okay, so that's an extended explanation of this parable. Let's now draw out some lessons. Let's now draw out some lessons. I'll give you five. Five brief lessons from the parable of the tenants. Lesson number one, you are not your own. You are not your own. In the parable, the tenants act as if the vineyard belongs to them, when in reality they're mere renters. That old owner is far off, distant from our daily operations, or so they think. Oh, friends, it is so easy to forget. I doubt many people in this room would deny this. But many of us, if we're honest, have forgotten it on a daily basis. To forget that everything we possess belongs to a God who lent it to us. We are not sovereigns. We are stewards. But sin is deceptive. It it casts a spell, doesn't it? Sin casts a spell that convinces us that we need to hold tightly to stuff, to white-knuckle a possession, a relationship, a desire, an opportunity as if it's ours, as if we are the owner, as if we are in charge. Meanwhile, the Bible, because God loves us, crashes in uncomfortably. It crashes in to our deception with words like 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. How's that for a verse to memorize? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you realize every part of being a Christian is derivative of that one sentence? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This is why we confessed earlier in the service the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. RCBC, church plant, on the cutting edge of 1563. What is, our, what is your only comfort in life and death? What did we confess earlier? That I am not my own. That I am not my own. That, that's not a, like, ah, uh, I, I have to believe this. That here's an inconvenient truth that I kind of have to believe as part of a package deal to be a Christian. No, this is the first phrase in the answer to the question, what is your only comfort? Comfort that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on 
to live for him. Remember, friends, what the tenants forgot. You are not your own. Lesson number two. Sin is irrational. (laughs) Sin is irrational. Reading this parable on its face, it, it can be confusing to try to climb into the tenants' minds. I mean, what are they thinking? Do, do they really think that they can pummel all these servants and then murder the owner's son and get away with it? This is not clear thinking. Now, maybe there was some kind of legal calculation that if the owner also happens to die, then they'll have a shot at getting the property. But their mindset is fundamentally foolish. They have no reason to believe the owner's going anywhere except coming to them now. It's so short-sighted. Surely they knew they'd eventually have to pay, that the owner wouldn't just sit back and yawn at this horrific injustice. But friends, sin is like this. Sin warps our minds. Sin is always irrational. It never finally makes sense. It leads us to think crazy thoughts like, Because we can't see the owner today, because we can't see the owner, we have nothing to fear. Because he's invisible, he's irrelevant. Because we haven't suffered any consequences yet, we won't. Did the tenant's reasoning make sense? No. But you know what else doesn't make sense, Jesus is saying? When we reject God's messengers. When we treat lightly the words he sends us. When we fail to embrace and live for the glory of his son, whom he sent us, whom he loves. Sin is irrational. Lesson number three. God is patient. God is patient. Look back with me at verse 4. Then the owner sent another servant to them. Verse 5. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Another, still another, many others. This is a picture of patience that is just otherworldly. I mean, compare yourself to it. Just think about yourself this past week. How often were you on a hair trigger, (laughs) quick to explode? The Bible presents a very different kind of father. A father who is slow slow to anger. He is exceedingly forbearing. He suffers long with us. And brothers and sisters, if God can be so patient with us, we should be patient with others. In fact, patience with others this coming week will be one of the main indicators that you've been truly transformed by the patience of God. And if you have no patience for others, 
then it at least calls into question whether you've truly experienced or internalized the exceeding, abundant, over-the-top, otherworldly patience of God toward you. No one this coming week, I promise, you may be sinned against horrifically. I'm not here to minimize that. But I can say with confidence, no one this coming week will annoy you or misunderstand you or offend you or sin against you more than you have against this God. Oh, RCBC, let's pray that God would make us a family of members who plant our feet in relationships, who settle in, who don't just love on our own terms when it's convenient, who don't peace out when things get tough when a relationship didn't turn out the way that we wanted. Christian love, Christian friendship is not what we're prone naturally and culturally to think it is. Christian love is not, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, friendship will not always feel, Christian friendship will not always feel like this beautifully reciprocal two-way street. Welcome to a fallen world. Welcome to life in an ordinary church. In her helpful book, In His Image, 10 ways, to, uh, ten ways God Calls Us to Reflect His Character, Jen Wilkin writes this, Quote, research shows that the average attention span has shrunk from 12 seconds in the year 2000 to 8 seconds. This means our attention span is now officially shorter than that of a goldfish by a full second. And then after reflecting on the Lord's immense patience toward us, she writes, the church must be a bastion of patience. As the rest of the world chases the next new thing every eight seconds, we must be those who take the long view. We must be known for our staying power when our neighbor, when loving our neighbors takes longer than we expected and is harder than we thought. It takes patience to run with endurance, but that is the race the world needs to see us run. It may just be what catches and holds their attention in a goldfish world. Let patience be found among the people of God. He is not finished with us yet. God's people should be surprisingly patient, surprisingly long-suffering, because that's how God himself has been to us. He is patient. Lesson number four, God is just. God is just. Though the owner in the parable continues to forbear amid increasing hostility, there does come a point when his patience finally expires, not because he's a bad owner, but because he's a good one. Romans 2 puts this bluntly, speaking to religious hypocrites. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, Paul says in Romans 2, you're storing up wrath. That's a frightening phrase. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh friend, the lesson here is that while God's patience is incredible, it's not indefinite. 
He has treated you better than you deserve over and over and over again. He has sent his messengers, his words to you over and over and over again. He has come to you to collect the fruit of repentance. Do not mistake his patience for indifference. The time is coming when you will stand before your maker and give an account for your whole life. Are you ready, friend, for that day? Or are you like the religious leaders in Jesus' day who heard his little speech and knew it was about them, but didn't care? They just walked away. With what kind of heart are you listening to this sermon? This week I read something from the old Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle that made me sit up. Quote, the last day will prove that there was more going on in the consciences of hearers than was at all known to preachers. Tens of thousands will be found to have been convicted by their own conscience and yet to have died unconverted. Don't presume on his patience. God is also just. Finally, Lesson number five, his inheritance can be yours. His inheritance can be yours. Why did the tenants scramble to seize and murder the owner's son? Because they wanted his inheritance. And as we've seen, they were absolutely right about his identity. He was the heir. All the riches of the owner were coming to one person, that beloved son. But whereas the tenants violently took his life to get what wasn't theirs, Jesus Christ willingly gave his life to give us what wasn't ours. I already quoted Romans 8.32, but listen to what Paul writes earlier in that chapter. Starting in verse 15, the Holy Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, this is Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Volumes and volumes of sermons have been preached on that paragraph, but I just want you to notice that logic in Romans 8:17. To believe in the Son is to have the Holy Spirit. To have the Spirit is to be adopted by the Father. To be adopted by the Father is to share in his inheritance. Do you realize what Paul is saying? You, as an ordinary rebel, forgiven by Jesus, can be a co-heir because you're united to the heir, Jesus Christ. And what are you going to inherit? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Yes, but not just the earth. What does the verse say you're going to inherit? Romans 8, 17, heirs of God. A Christian is one who ultimately is going to forever get God. 
As J.I. Packer once said, for the Christian, the best is always yet to be. The best is always yet to be. Our Father's wealth is immeasurable, and we will inherit the entire estate. Well, in conclusion, uh, one commentator, I think, sums up well what we've seen in these first three days of Christ's final week. Quote, he comes to the temple as the Messiah, greeted by the words of Psalm 118. So the same psalm that Jesus quotes in the parable of the tenants is the same psalm we heard quoted in the triumphal entry. He's greeted by the words of Psalm 18. Remember, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He searches for the fruit of repentance, but it's not there. And so the temple is cursed. When the rebellious leaders ask who gave him authority to do these things, he tells them a parable about how the son comes with the authority of the father. He returns to the prophecy of Psalm 118 to show that he is the stone that gets rejected but is vindicated as the cornerstone. The tenants in this parable tried to grasp and keep for themselves fruit that didn't belong to them. Fruit that didn't belong to them. Does that remind you of anything else? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, took fruit that wasn't theirs because they misjudged God's character. The serpent had slithered in to, the, to convince them that the owner of Eden was stingy, a withholder of good, and so they had to fend for themselves. But in reality, the owner, the one who owned the garden and who'd given parameters for working it on his behalf, was utterly worth trusting because he was after their good. And even after centuries of his people's idolatry and rebellion, taking fruit that wasn't theirs, failing to be a vineyard for the Lord, in the fullness of time, the owner sent his son whom he loves. And his first public miracle was turning water into wine. And on his last night on earth, he was sweating blood in a garden of olives. The first Adam failed his test in the garden of Eden and we died. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, passed his test in the garden of Gethsemane, and we live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you do not judge us in Christ in accordance with what our sins deserve. If we were left to ourselves, if you judged us according to our transgressions, none of us could stand. But Lord, we stand not on our own merit, but in the merit, in the love, in the mercy of the one who was sent from heaven to earth to live and die and rise so that we, can, we could experience the feast of heaven for all eternity. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.